listeners to the second in an ongoing series of Connection Healthcare podcasts on hot topics in oncology and rare disease. I'm Connor Galloway, Senior Vice President of Strategic Services and Business Development at Connection. And this episode will focus on the ASCO 2017 annual meeting beginning June 2nd in Chicago, Illinois. Today I'm joined by Steve Lang, Senior Vice President of our Oncology Center of Excellence, and Val Sudakin, Head of Scientific Services here at Connection. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Connor. Thanks for having us. So, Val, is there anything prominent, anything that we can call a main topic at this year's ASCO? So, you see, for the last six or seven years, immuno-oncology invariably takes a central stage at ASCO meetings. It is indeed an exponentially growing area of cancer therapy. And the story began with the first report about survival benefits of ipilimumab, or as we know it, Yerboi, in melanoma one of the indications that didn't see any meaningful progress in terms of clinical benefits for a very, very long time. So what's special about immunotherapy in oncology? How is it different than, say, traditional chemo and and targeted drugs? So you see, unlike traditional cancer therapies, and they include chemotherapy and targeted compounds that directly attack malignant cells, immune therapies harness our immune system to recognize and attack the tumor, which is otherwise masked and invisible to or actively inhibiting the immune response. And uh, we now recognize a few distinct categories of such immune therapies. First, there are therapies that enable T cells to attack the cancer cells by binding and modifying the signal transduction or cell receptors. And this category includes their above-mentioned drug ipilimumab and other so-called checkpoint inhibitors. These are the drugs that prevent tumor cells from inactivating the T-cells. A variety of antibodies and small molecules can achieve such effect by altering metabolic or signaling pathways to boost the immune response or prevent its suppression. Second, we know about so-called active therapies that involve isolation and direct manipulations with the patient's T-cells that consequently reintroduced to the patient and will directly target the tumor. Adaptive cell transfer is the oldest of these methods. It involves the removal of T-cells from the body, which are then expanded and genetically altered for specificity toward tumor-associated antigens, or TAAs, and then reintroduced to the patient. Many efforts are also directed at the development of cancer vaccines designed to stimulate an immune response, sometimes in the context of antigen-presenting cells or viral vectors. The resulting cytotoxicity has the potential to lead to a robust immune response against the tumor. And a final approach is bispecific T-cell engagers. These antibodies act to link a T-cell and tumor cell and, as a result, forcibly generate immune recognition. Are there any specific indications that are better suited for immunotherapy? You see, it all started from melanoma, and initially great progress was made in solid tumors. It isn't so anymore. It seems that this year's ASCO will not be exception from the latest trend, and the new and emerging immunotherapies will take a central stage again. The therapies in each of these categories are all still very new, and ongoing clinical trials could provide even further additions. 
The full therapeutic potential of immunotherapy has yet to be realized, but holds great promise for the future of cancer treatment. We see very busy scientific and clinical programs presenting results about already approved and experimental compounds targeting immune system in the variety of malignancies. Among main indications of interest in solid tumors are not only melanoma that I mentioned before, but also lung cancer and also breast gastrointestinal, gynecological, and head and neck malignancies. The development of immuno-oncolytic drugs moved into the realm of hematologic malignancies as well. Current ASCO meeting will have reports dedicated to the development of immunotherapies in such major indications as lymphoma and multiple myeloma. It is also noteworthy that immunotherapy, as any other kind of cancer therapy, may be best suited for distinct types of patients, possessing very specific biomarkers. We see that some sessions at the current meeting will be dedicated to cutting-edge research directed at identifications of such biomarkers. Also, there are a number of presentations focusing on for overcoming resistance to immunotherapy. For me, it is especially telling that this year's Karnofsky Memorial Award is bestowed on Dr. Carl June from UPenn for his achievements in research of chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, or CAR-T therapy, one of the methods we discussed previously. It is the strongest testament on the importance and hope that we currently associate with immune therapies in oncology. Thanks, Val. What else is of high interest at ASCO this year? Another very important and pertinent topic that is prominently represented in this year's ASCO agenda is something that we now broadly call financial toxicity in cancer care. Cancer is one of the most costly diseases to treat. We have to deal today with increasingly expensive chemotherapy and biologics, both alone and in combinations. Inherently, cancer patients require the use of expensive supportive agents, such as growth factors, to alleviate serious side effects of treatment. It is common today to have a price tag of more than 120000 a year for a single cancer patient. It seems that this trend will continue in foreseeable future. Is the price of new drugs the only reason for this? No, it isn't, unfortunately. Lately, commercial insurers have increasingly shifted medical care costs to patients through higher premiums, deductibles, and coinsurance and copayment rates. It was reported recently that more than 20% of insured adults experienced out-of-pocket costs equal to 10% or more of their household income. Cancer drugs and supportive care covered under medical benefits entail high out-of-pocket costs. These costs also appear to be growing. Isn't this true for healthcare in general? When compared with individuals without a cancer history, cancer survivors have higher out-of-pocket costs even many years after initial diagnosis, reflecting ongoing cancer care and care for any late or lasting treatment effects. In addition, cancer survivors are more likely to report being unable to work because of their health, including more missed work days or additional days spent in bed because of poor health. Limited ability to work may also reduce employment-based health insurance options and resources to pay for medical care, further magnifying the financial impact of cancer. Combined, those factors contribute to the phenomenon of financial toxicity in cancer care. So what is ASCO doing to address this issue? 
The following sessions reflect high emphasis that ASCO puts on the health economic issues and high financial burden imposed on cancer patients and survivors. And among them, we see interventions to reduce financial toxicity, industry payer and patient perspectives, cancer care in under-resourced populations, and resource-stratified guidelines, in particular, treatment of lung cancer in low- and medium-resource countries. We see value of therapy in lymphoma and CLL, balancing cost and access to care. Also, Medicare alternative payment model and future of bundled payments will be discussed. Value framework, which is pharmaceutical industry payments and drug selection, oncologist perception of affordability, and last, obviously, but not least, patient-centered oncology payments. Financial toxicity in cancer care is a real and enduring issue. It seems that the oncology community is fully aware of it and plans to develop tangible steps to address it. Thanks for that very highly scientific overview, Val. So, Steve, what's dominating the current marketplace? Well, as Val has stated, biomarkers research and immunotherapy remain the dominant focus of much of the drug development programs within oncology. Significant amounts of research effort and associated funding has been and is being applied to developing targeted therapies and vaccines that are designed to impact the immune system. And by that I mean to assist and or to stimulate the immune system to kill cancer cells. The obvious intention is to create an effective treatment with an enhanced safety profile versus earlier treatment options such as chemo. As an aside, virtually every company engaged in oncology research, from big pharma to emerging companies, has committed to an immunotherapy drug development program or is partnering with a company that is. This means that many more drugs will be developed and subsequently made available for many years to come. In addition to the research and development spending, significant amounts of promotional funding supports and will support the vaccines and targeted therapies that are derived from these immunotherapy drug development programs. So what's next? Well, immunotherapy isn't going anywhere, uh, Connor. It'll be with us for many years to come. But biosimilars have the potential to have a significant impact on the marketplace. So for our listeners who aren't familiar, what's, what's a biosimilar? Biosimilar is a biological medical product that is essentially the same as a given reference product. Not a generic, which by FDA definition means that all active ingredients must be exactly the same as a reference drug. By contrast, a biosimilar will never be an identical copy of the reference product but an FDA-approved biosimilar is as close to the reference product as another manufacturing site can get. It will offer comparable efficacy and safety and will likely subsequently bear the same indications as the reference product. It's worth noting that in the manufacturing of biologics, there can be very subtle differences from one manufacturing site to another, and while still remaining within the requirements set by the FDA. In short, An FDA approval means that the biosimilar is essentially the same product as the reference product and should provide the same treatment outcomes. So what's the likely impact of biosimilars? Well, with only five biosimilars available in the U.S., it's tough to be definitive. However, I believe it's fair to state that the expectation is that biosimilars will increase treatment accessibility by providing more treatment options to the clinicians and at a lesser cost to the patient than the reference product. One hurdle to biosimilars is that clinicians are quick to advise that they, quote, don't know much about biosimilars, unquote, which could lead to misunderstanding and slow adoption. 
Further, any, quote, cost savings, unquote, of biosimilars has yet to be well-defined. As I've stated, biosimilars are not generics, but several managed care and payers are likely expecting similar cost reductions as they've seen with past generics to the reference products. This may not be forthcoming with biosimilars. After all, the manufacturing process for a biosimilar is essentially the same as the reference product with all the corresponding cost factors. Arguably, a significant educational program designed for all treatment stakeholders will likely be required before biosimilars are able to make a significant impact on treatment options and the marketplace in general. In fact, Connection Healthcare is already engaged in better defining what clinicians need to know about biosimilars and developing medical education programs designed to advance the understanding of biosimilars, what they are, what they mean to the healthcare professional, what they mean to the patients, and subsequently how they can improve cancer treatment. Steve, what else is happening in the marketplace? Well, several things. From much improved patient advocacy and educational websites to earlier and more accurate diagnosis, oncology is a very dynamic marketplace. But one activity that has significantly increased is the very active promotion of oncology centers. Hospitals and treatment centers are conducting print and media campaigns in select regions across the U.S., Hospitals and treatment centers are actually competing for patients by attempting to differentiate themselves from other options in any given region. For example, in the Philadelphia area, it's not uncommon to see an ad campaign on TV for Penn's Cancer Center, Fox Chase Cancer Center, and the Cancer Centers of America all within an hour or two. In short, cancer treatment has become very competitive, and this trend will likely only increase. Thank you to Steve Lang, Senior VP of our Oncology Center of Excellence, for joining me today. And thank you to Val Sudikin, head of our scientific services team here at Connection. Thank you, Connor. Connection Healthcare is a full-service medical and healthcare communications agency. The information provided in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek the advice of a physician or a qualified healthcare provider for any questions regarding disease prevention, diagnosis, and treatment, or other aspects of medical care. Thank you.